Voters in Iowa will have to brave historically cold temperatures tonight to show up to vote in the GOP caucuses and kick off the 2024 race to the White House. Parts of Iowa may fall to 30 below, so Mother Nature will put voter enthusiasm to the test. It's Monday, January 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also coming in a conversation with the granddaughter of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King about her new children's book about kindness, equality, and service. It's now illegal to sell or manufacture assault weapons in Illinois after a ban went into effect January 1st, but the vast majority of permit-holding Illinois gun owners are not complying with the new law. These stories and the Hollywood strikes delayed the annual Emmy Awards, but tonight the awards will finally be handed out, but only for the past seasons of TV shows. It's 4.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News at the Iowa caucuses, I'm Jack Spear. It is a balmy one degree here in West Des Moines, Iowa, where several hours from now caucus goers will be coming to this location. It's really the kickoff of the process of the months-long Republican presidential uh, primary process. Um, NPR's Don Gagne joins me live. So, Don, why are all eyes focused on Iowa here? This is where the election season officially begins. The action in Iowa is all on the Republican side. Polls have consistently shown that Donald Trump is the favorite, a lead in the range of 30 points. Uh, there'll be lots of attention paid to see if he actually performs that well. But the big battle will likely be for second place between former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Whoever comes in second will try to use that as a boost into future states. So you've been here for a few days. Briefly, how does this caucus process work? It's very different from what other states do. Yes. Uh, at each caucus site in the state, there are more than 1,600 of them. People need to be in place by 7 p.m. local time. A caucus captain makes remarks, calls on any representatives of the various candidates who might like to make a short speech. After that, voting begins. To do so, caucus participants simply put an X next to the name of their preferred candidate on a small sheet of paper. It's put in a box. Uh, when the vote are hand counted. We hopefully, within a couple hours, get results. NPR's Don Gagne joining us. Thanks, Don. The blizzard is over meanwhile, but it is bitterly cold here in Iowa. Windchill warnings are up. It could affect tonight's turnout. Sheila Brummer is with Iowa Public Radio and has more. Communications Director for the Republican Party of Iowa, Kush Desai, says the weather is obviously a concern as people head out to caucus tonight, but he didn't seem overly worried. Iowans are Midwesterners, we're used to the winters. We've had coxes for uh, half a century now, through snow, through rain, through freezing temperatures. Temperatures will be cold, with the National Weather Service predicting sub-zero weather and wind chills as low as 45 below, likely making for the coldest caucus night on record. Desai advised caucus goers to give themselves enough time to make it to precinct sites safely. For NPR News, I'm Sheila Brummer, Sioux City, Iowa. The Iowa caucus process is unique in its own way, though who will turn out tonight remains unclear. Some caucus goers are not backing the apparent frontrunner, according to polls, former President Donald Trump. Betsy Sarcone is a real estate agent here in West Des Moines. She supports Nikki Haley. I think that Nikki Haley's right on when she says the chaos that we're in um, cannot move forward. Um, and I agree with her. The world's on fire with everything going on right now, and he is not... Um, the smart choice to lead us forward. On the minds of voters here, the economy, foreign policy, and border security, among other factors. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. With the presidential primary season underway, threats to the nation's democracy were a common topic among speakers at Boston's Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Breakfast today. The annual event highlights the achievements of the black community and honors King's legacy. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports this year it also included urgent calls to action. Hundreds gathered this morning to hear from community leaders, clergy, and politicians. A recurring theme? democracy in danger. Representative Ayanna Presley spoke about threats to voting rights. People very often will be laudatory about the fact that black folks will wait in line for hours to cast a ballot and that we have outworked and outorganized voter suppression. It should not be that way. Presley called on the crowd to reflect on King's legacy and, quote, fortify themselves for the fight ahead. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The city of Springfield will have its first police superintendent who's an African-American. Lawrence Akers will lead the department in the state's third largest city. Mayor Dominic Sarno made the announcement today during a Martin Luther King Day celebration. I've witnessed him personally uh, on some difficult situations on the street, how he's handled, but just as important, his compassion and empathy that he shows the community. The new superintendent is a 36-year-old veteran of the Springfield Police Department. Price of gasoline is down four cents from last week. AAA says the average price of a gallon of gas in Massachusetts is $3.13. That's 15 cents lower than a month ago, but the state's average gas price is seven cents higher than the national average. The energy officials say the lower prices can be attributed to weaker demand this winter, which has helped boost regional inventories. 32 degrees now freezing out there. Clouds on the way tonight. Cold again, about 25 degrees. Should have some snow tomorrow mixing with rain off and on up around 37 degrees. Maybe a couple of inches sticking to the ground inland. Just about an inch or two around Boston, although that could change, so stay tuned. Sunshine moves back in for Wednesday. Again, 32 in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Republicans in Iowa hold their first-in-the-nation caucuses this evening, kicking off voting in the presidential primary. Former President Donald Trump has maintained a steady polling lead in Iowa, and he is hoping for a big win there tonight. We begin our coverage with Clay Masters, who's reported on many of these caucuses and is now with Minnesota Public Radio. Hi, Clay. Hello. So, Clay, before we get into the candidates and the politics of all of this, you got to give us a weather report. We are hearing (laughs) that it is absolutely freezing there in Iowa, and I have to assume that could have some impact on the caucuses tonight, right? Yeah, it'll have an impact, but not really sure how yet. These Republican events are in person. Remember, they begin at 7 p.m. local time, so people need to you know, leave their warm homes or wherever and gather at some 1,600 precincts across the state. At caucus time, uh, temperatures will be around minus four in Des Moines with wind chill much colder. And that's really dangerous conditions to be out in. Roads won't be great, especially in rural counties where it's further distance to travel uh, than, say, Des Moines or Cedar Rapids, the larger metros. And so it may affect turnout, but it's unclear which candidate that might really benefit from the weather like this. Yeah, well, hoping everybody stays safe. Clay, let's turn now to the candidates. I know that you're going to be with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis tonight. Tell us how the Florida governor sees this evening going. 
Well, DeSantis has a lot riding on the results here, perhaps more than anyone else. He's invested a lot of time and a lot of energy here in Iowa, visiting all of the state's 99 counties. Endorsements from Governor Kim Reynolds, which is pretty unprecedented for a sitting governor to endorse, and Bob Vanderplotz, uh, who's a evangelical leader in the state who always becomes kind of the topic of conversation around caucuses because of his endorsements. So we'll see if all that investment pays dividends tonight. But the fact is, he's, he's still in a battle for second place if polls are accurate and finishing well behind Trump and maybe even Nikki Haley would raise some pretty serious questions about his path forward. Uh, I've been following him in recent days and he said, you know, don't believe the polls. This is how you win by doing the strategy he has done. I was at the headquarters for his Never Back Down pack, which has done a lot of the campaigning for him on his behalf a couple days ago. And it was full of volunteers who had come up from Florida. They were here to help out in the finals days. So he's he's got a lot of organization and investment in the state. Okay, so that's DeSantis. But what about the other leading candidates, former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley? Yeah, as you said, Juana, Trump is the clear front runner based on polling. So he and his surrogates have been urging people, you know, not to get complacent. Trump often brings out some newer voters. So that's perhaps part of the thinking. But many Trump supporters are very committed to him and getting out regardless of the weather. It's clear Trump would like to win by double digits tonight so that he can just truly pivot to just focusing on the general election. And you mentioned Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador as well. She's hoping to get in his way here, not even necessarily win, but cut into that lead substantially and propel her to states that may be more favorable, like New Hampshire next week, and then to her home state of, of South Carolina. And I should mention, too, you still have Vivek Ramaswamy, who this morning is saying he's going to win the Iowa caucuses. He's done uh, the full Grassley twice. The full Grassley is a reference to hitting every one mm-hmm. of Iowa's 99 counties, and he, he did it twice. But he's polling a distant fourth most of this caucus cycle. So we'll see if those traditional campaign strategies have the same impact here in 2024. And Clay, we, we haven't mentioned Democrats at all here, and that's purposeful. Remind folks why that is. President Joe Biden is the incumbent, of course, with lesser known challengers, but Iowa Democrats also moved away from caucuses after tech issues marred their contest four years ago. So the DNC has has moved on from Iowa being first in the nation. South Carolina is. So here in Iowa, Democrats are doing a mail voting contest that will conclude on March 5th. That's Super Tuesday. So that's when we'll know the results of the Democratic caucuses here. And that's really cleared the focus for Republicans and, of course, Donald Trump. Clay Masters from Minnesota Public Radio reporting from Iowa. Clay, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Today, many people are honoring the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., including his first and only grandchild. Yolanda Renee King is 15 years old. She never met her grandfather, but like countless others, she's been inspired by his words and actions. To honor the legacy of both her grandparents, King wrote the picture book, We Dream a World. Carrying the light from my grandparents, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. NPR's Andrew Limbong spoke with Yolanda Renee King, and he asked her what prompted her to write a book. Well, I wrote this book to inspire hope and to encourage young people to use their talents to create a better world. And this book really... I guess, challenges everyone to imagine a world without racism and and violence and discrimination and a clean climate. Yeah, yeah. You take a lot of big swings in the book. And I I just want to dial back a bit. 
Do you remember the first time you understood your your grandparents' legacy? And I wonder what that felt like. My whole life, I, I had always been told and educated about what my grandparents did. And I would say that around the age of nine is when I, or eight, is when I first really started to understand their legacy. Like, it wasn't just someone directly telling me. It was, it was me being able to come to a conclusion myself. I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, my grandparents are pretty awesome. Was it something that happened or, or did you witness something where that light bulb sort of clicked? I can't remember. I don't have an actual distinct memory of me doing anything and it coming up. I, I can probably tell you that I, I may have been reading something or watching something about them and it, it suddenly hit me in a different light. I, I actually was able to, I guess, understand the actual significance and the actual dedication. I feel like as I mature, like I understand more and more. Yeah, it was like you coming at it in your own terms, in your right. own way. Which is funny because in the book you write, um, quote, and now it's my turn to start a new revolution that values kindness, truth, equality, and service. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that point and what you mean? Well, I, I really believe that service is, is one of the best ways to solve our issues. And I, I believe that it needs to be incorporated into our curriculum and and taught to kids at a young age. Because I really think that through service and, and through using our talents and strengths, that, that's where the impact comes in. And in fact, service is so important to my family and I. Today, we are announcing our five-year project that celebrates my grandfather's 100th birthday with the goal of uh, obtaining 100 million hours of service within five years, so by the 100th birthday. This initiative is called Realizing the Dream, and we are kicking it off at the NFL wildcard game in Tampa. It's a pretty big way to try and like change the world, kind of. And that can be kind of daunting, especially for, for young people. Um, do you have any advice for someone who might not know where to start? I think a lot of people, the thing that scares them or discourages them from getting involved is that they think that, oh, I have to do a speech and speak in front of a very fancy rally with a large, large audience. Mm -hmm. While that is great and impactful, it's not the only way. And there are so many other ways. And it can be something you do outside of work. It can be something like using your talents. So if you're, for instance, an artist, um, painting um, painting art pieces that really reflect what's going on. And I think a lot of people forget how big of a role art's played, whether that be visually or, or musically in the civil rights movement. And and you could write songs or joining a local group or or starting a club at school. There, there are just so many ways. You, you've talked a little bit about finding your own thing. You have to you know, use your own voice and find what works for you, right? Um, you have a name that's important and historic, uh, which is great, but I, but I think sometimes I can like weigh on a person. And, and I'm wondering, how have you gone about finding your own thing, your own voice? Well, it's a growing process. It, it's not, I don't think one day I've, I've woken up and I've found my voice. I think it's something that evolves as like, it, it's almost growing with me. So as I grow, my voice grows and it's not fully developed yet since I'm still growing. And, and honestly, like when you're an adult, I feel like you're still growing as you're learning stuff. So I, I think that it will be something that will constantly be growing as I mature and as I get more wise. Yes, I, I'll let you know, we are still <laughs> growing. We don't really know what we're doing, dude. Um, 
You know, I'm wondering, what is something you think your grandparents would be proud of seeing today? Well, I think that my grandparents would be proud of seeing the the young generations and, and how involved they are and concerned they are about the issues. My grandfather, I think a lot of people forget this, but he was only 39 when he was assassinated. And, and so when the movement began, he was he was still in his 20s. And, and so he started um, pretty young. Yeah, I, I think that that's an that's an understated point. But I do wonder, speaking of being young, you know, we're catching you, you know, in between flights, in between all these like big events. Um, do you have time to just like be 15? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, uh, I still like to hang out with friends and then watch movies and listen to music and everything else. And, and this is probably the most busiest weekend of the year. And usually during this time, yeah. there's, um, there's, not, there's not a lot of time for downtime or time with friends. But even as I've been on the road, I'll still, I mean, yesterday I was just talking to my best friend. We, we talk to each other every day. And, and so I'm still talking to people and we still will hang out probably when I get home and after all of this is, after this week is done. Um, but, but yeah, I, I enjoy that. Yolanda Renee King is the granddaughter of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. Her new book is called We Dream a World, Carrying the Light from My Grandparents. Yolanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The first votes of the 2024 presidential election will be cast tonight in Iowa. Listen tonight at 8 o'clock for live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus right here at 90.9 WBUR. Meanwhile, coming up in about 15 minutes, four years after an app failure derailed Democrats' Iowa caucus, we look at how Republicans are planning to report results from voting tonight. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explow, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explow.org summer. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Vacant lab space in Greater Boston has hit an all-time high. The real estate services and investment firm CBRE tells the Boston Business Journal that lab science vacancies have shot past the 10% mark, reaching a level not seen in nearly two decades. The firm says it's partly due to companies becoming more conservative with their cash amid a fundraising slowdown, and it follows a building boom that started before the arrival of COVID and accelerated in the first two years of the pandemic. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to wbur.org. 
After a nice sunny and dry day, we should have a cloudy night tonight. Temperatures about 25 degrees. Some snow tomorrow mixing with rain off and on up around 37 degrees. Maybe a couple of inches sticking to the ground before it all ends toward the end of the day. And then sunshine's back in for Wednesday. Shouldn't break even 30 degrees. It is 32 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Drug companies often increase prices at the start of the new year, and 2024 seems to be no exception. Here to talk to us about prescription drug price hikes is NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin. Hey there. Hi. What's this year looking like so far? So there have been about 600 price hikes so far in January, but overall, they're not terrible. That's according to the drug price nonprofit 46 Brooklyn Research, which analyzed the data. In the 2010s, drug price hikes were actually much bigger, up to 10% on average. Here's 46 Brooklyn's CEO, Anthony Chacha. Since 2016, the pedal to the metal has been kind of pulled back a little bit where we typically see the weighted average impact of a price increase and the median price increase hovering at around 5%. And that's what he's seeing this year. He expects another couple hundred more drug price increases before the end of the month, and that will account for most brand name price hikes this year. However, there is another kind of price to think about called a net price, and that's what the drug maker takes home after rebates it has to pay back to third parties, discounts, etc. And on the whole, those rebates have been going up, so the net prices have been going down for about six years now. Richard Evans, a pharmaceutical industry veteran who runs SSR Health, says net prices went down a little faster in 2023 than in previous years. As of September 30 last year, the average discount in the marketplace was about 52%. So manufacturers are getting about 48 cents on the dollar. So even if a drug sticker price is going up, that doesn't mean the drug maker is taking all that money home. Were there any surprises this year? Yes, actually. There was also huge list price decreases, according to 46 Brooklyn. These were for insulins and inhalers, and they weren't tiny cuts. We're talking 70, 80 percent list price cuts for these drugs. GSK says it plans to cut Advair's list price by up to 70 percent, for example. Cha-Cha says the cuts are so significant that they actually cancel out the increases when you're doing weighted averages of price changes. Why is that happening? So the big factor is legislation passed in 2021 under President Biden called the American Rescue Plan Act. It was mostly a COVID-era stimulus bill, but it also included a part that affects Medicaid. Prior to that law, drug makers had to pay penalties for increasing prices faster than inflation. But there was a cap on those penalties. The American Rescue Plan lifted the cap in 2024. And now drug makers would have to pay such huge penalties for raising prices faster than inflation that they'd owe the government more than the value of the drugs. They would make negative money. Here's Chacha again. The end result is drug manufacturers crushing the prices of many of these old products or pulling those products from the marketplace altogether to avoid having to pay the steep penalties to Medicaid programs. 
okay, so prices are going up, but some are going down. What does all of this mean for consumers? Usually what someone pays at the pharmacy counter is related to the list price. So if a list price goes up, the copay will probably be more. But a price cut doesn't necessarily mean savings at the pharmacy counter. The copay could wind up being more because it causes the drug to move to a different tier of the menu of drugs your insurance provides. And this has a lot to do with the behind the scenes payments that happen between the drug maker and your insurance's middleman called the pharmacy benefits manager. So the short answer, I'm really sorry to say, is that it really depends. That's NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lepkin. Thanks. You bet. The 75th Emmy Awards will air live tonight from Los Angeles. You might be wondering if it's normal that this ceremony celebrating primetime television shows and streaming series is happening on a public holiday. The answer is no. NPR's Mandalate Del Barco reports on the much-delayed ceremony, which will honor what might feel like long-ago TV performances. Last summer, Hollywood writers and performers were on the picket lines demanding new contracts with the studios and streamers. TV productions were stalled. Writers and actors couldn't talk about their work, much less attend any events like red carpets or award shows. So the Television Academy decided to push the Emmys from last September to this month. That means nominations may feel a bit dated. The fourth and final season of Succession, which ended in May, leads the pack with 27 nominations. After all we've been through. The first season of HBO's The Last of Us ended in March. Now it's up against Succession for outstanding drama. So is the Star Wars series Andor, which ended in November of 2022, and Better Call Saul, which ended even earlier in August of 2022. Who's here to see Saul Goodman? Better Call Saul has been off the air for about 18 months, and we're still trying to get Bob Odenkirk an Emmy. So it gets a little strange around this time. Clayton Davis is senior awards editor at Variety. We just watched Jeremy Allen White and Ayo Itabiri win Golden Globes for season two of The Bear, and we still don't know if they won Emmys for season one. Nominations for the Emmys were announced last July, and voting ended in August, in the middle of the double strikes. There were still billboards, and everyone could see who was in the Emmy race, but, you know, the social media of these actors were quiet. The social media of writers were quiet. You know, they couldn't promote anything. We might see maybe one of the purest Emmy winners that we've seen in some time because there was no campaigning. So people just had their own feelings about these TV shows. Davis wonders in the Outstanding Comedy Series category if The Bear will maul Ted Lasso. And then there's Abbott Elementary, a broadcast show hasn't won since Modern Family, uh, season five. So can this be the revival of broadcast television? These are the questions I'm dying to know. Davis notes that the eligibility for the next Emmy Awards comes up soon, in just four months. That ceremony is still scheduled for September, though this past year's TV production delays could make for another unusual awards race. Meanwhile, tonight, actor and comedian Anthony Anderson will host the Emmys. Four years ago, he was tapped for a comedic bit during the show. From his seat in the audience, he bounded on stage and backstage to look for someone to emcee that ceremony. We're saved! 
Ladies and gentlemen, I saved the Emmys. After the widely agreed upon disaster that was the Golden Globes host job last week, viewers may be watching to see if Anderson can help rev excitement for the winners of this year's Emmy Awards. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. Will tonight's Emmy ceremony be worth the long wait? Find out on tomorrow's All Things Considered. The team from NPR's Arts and Culture Desk will have a recap of the show. They'll have the story of the winners and the losers. Plus, they'll tell us all about Annie's surprises. From the red carpet to backstage, you'll have an all-access pass. Tune in on the radio, online, or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. A dry, crisp holiday with a cold night ahead tonight down in the low to mid-20s. We're back to the wet winter weather, though, tomorrow. Should bring some snow tomorrow, light for much of the day, varying amounts of accumulation. Barely anything south of the city, maybe an inch or two in Boston, maybe more toward the interior. Temperatures in the mid-30s tomorrow. Wednesday should be bright and sunny and dry again only in the mid-20s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 32 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. The Republican presidential candidates have been putting time and money into Iowa. Who will see a payoff? Iowa, you know you set the tone for the rest of the country. I will take that torch into the remaining states. You can't sit home. Get up. You get up if you vote. We'll have results and analysis of the Iowa caucuses on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. It's bitter cold in Iowa as voting in the first in the nation caucuses gets underway tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. The temperature is zero and the wind chill 20 below, prompting the National Weather Service to issue a wind chill warning. But Des Moines Mayor Connie Boson says they're ready. Well, we have done everything possible to make sure we got the 20 inches of snow that we got this week cleared. And as everybody's been commenting on, the below zero temperatures are, it's cold. Former President Donald Trump started his day slamming his rivals, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, on his social media site. Houthi militants struck another U.S.-owned ship today near the coast of Yemen in the latest sign that efforts to reduce tensions in a vital commercial strait have a ways to go. And Pierce Peter Kenyon reports the attacks follow U.S.-led strikes on Yemen. A report by the U.K. Maritime Trade Operations says the missile attack took place more than 100 miles south of Yemen. 
The U.S. Central Command confirmed the strike, naming the Houthis as the perpetrators. It said the attack did not cause any significant damage to the vessel. The ship's owners reported that all on board were confirmed to be uninjured. The U.S. Maritime Administration warned of a high risk to commercial vessels in the area. It advises U.S. flag and American-owned commercial ships to avoid Yemen and the surrounding waters until further notice. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been released from the hospital after complications following prostate cancer surgery. His two-week hospitalization drew controversy because he didn't tell some of his staff nor the White House for days. The 70-year-old says he's grateful for the care he received. The Pentagon says he will recuperate and work from home, but it's not clear when he will return to work at the Pentagon. Wall Street closed today in observance of the memorial of the holiday. This is NPR News. A historic civil rights organization has a new advocacy plan to coincide with the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Pierre's Kristen Wright has more. The Urban League says it's putting Dr. King's dream into action with a new phase in its activism. We are a nation in crisis and a nation at a crossroads. Urban League president Mark Moriel says the D3 campaign aims to defend democracy, demand diversity, and defeat poverty. The organization's elevated response to heightened threats, such as voter suppression, white supremacy, and economic barriers. We have worked hard to expand and protect this nation and its democratic principles. We cannot go back. The Urban League reflects on what Dr. King would say about America's challenges today. He'd be disappointed in that. He'd be upset. But hopeful. Kristen Wright, NPR News. Winter weather delayed the Buffalo Bills AFC wildcard playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers this weekend. It will now be held this afternoon. Kickoff is scheduled to happen now. More than a foot of snow has fallen in the stadium in Orchard Park in New York. Crews and fans, though, got busy shoveling the snow from that stadium. Later tonight, the Philadelphia Eagles play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at 8.15 Eastern. I'm Janine Herbst. NPR News in Washington. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins blanked the New Jersey Devils today in an afternoon game at the Garden. Boston goalie Jeremy Swayman stopped all 31 shots he faced. 7.30 tip-off time tonight for the Boston Celtics on the road up north to take on the Toronto Raptors. In the forecast, clouds on the way in tonight should be cold again, about 25 degrees. Could have some snow tomorrow, mixing with rain off and on up around 37 degrees. Maybe a couple of inches sticking to the ground inland, an inch or two around Boston. The sunshine moves back in for Wednesday shouldn't break 30 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 32 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Four years ago, many listeners will remember the Iowa caucuses were a disaster. Democrats tried out a new app to transmit the results, which led to days of counting before anyone knew who won. Tonight, it's the Republicans who will choose their winner, and they are also planning to use an app to report results quickly. What could go wrong, right? Let's bring in NPR voting correspondent Miles Parks to discuss. Hi, Miles. Hey, Juana. So, Miles, tell us what we know at this point about how the state Republican Party plans to use technology this evening. Honestly, it's pretty similar to how Democrats tried to use it four years ago, but with some pretty key differences, too. Precinct leaders will go through the voting process in their individual, you know, school gyms and churches, and then they will use this web-based application to transmit results from the local level to the state level. The state party then will use a verification system to make sure no one, you know, made any data entry errors, and then they'll be reported on the state website, state party website, I should say. That's about the extent of what we know at this point, though, about this technology. We don't know anything about who built or who designed it. The state Republican Party told me their tech vendor has been working on it for close to a year, and they made it clear that they have been working really hard to secure it, but they wouldn't provide any more details than that. Right. I mean, Miles, I covered the 2020 campaign, and I remember that this sounds a lot like one of the big issues leading up to the 2020 caucuses. The Democratic Party did not share details about the app, and then it failed. Yeah, this is one of the strange things that comes in states where the political parties have the lead role over the nominating contests instead of government-run primaries. Iowa is the most notable of those states. There's just naturally less oversight over the process, which makes a lot of election experts really uneasy. I talked with Doug Jones. He's a retired election technology expert from the University of Iowa, and he said not knowing who made the app really worried him. I, I have no idea. You know, did they did they contact big companies? Did they did they have someone with a political connection who said, "Oh, I'll develop something for you"? I mean, I don't know. I don't have great expectations. But on the other hand, maybe they'll get lucky. I do think it's important to note, Juana, that this app tonight is only going to be transmitting unofficial results. Mm. You know, Americans really want those results quickly, but the official results are recorded on paper and verified by all the people in these individual caucus precincts. So there's no risk that any app malfunction or security breach could actually affect the results of tonight. Okay, well, that's good to hear. But Miles, should we be expecting this app to play a big role in the timing of when we might know tonight's results? The experts I talked to are optimistic that this thing will work a lot better than the one Democrats designed four years ago. One big reason, honestly, is that Republicans seem to be taking it really seriously. Four years ago, the state Democratic Party was sort of shrugging off concerns about the technology, and it turns out that technology was not ready for prime time. This year, Republicans have obviously gotten a glimpse of how bad this can be. They're saying all of the right things. They say they've been working on it for close to a year. And then the biggest thing, another big thing I should say, is that Democrats were hoping their app could do this complicated delegate formula in 2020. Mm -hmm. Republicans aren't trying to do that. They want this to just be a data reporting tool. So there's just less room for error. NPR's Miles Parks. Thanks so much. Thanks, Juana. This week, government and business leaders are gathering in Davos, Switzerland, for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Attendees are taking up issues of geopolitical security and the climate crisis. But a new report from the charity Oxfam says there is another glaring issue – the unequal distribution of wealth. The group says that while things are getting better for a few, they are getting worse for most of the world's population, though not everyone agrees it's so black and white. Reporter Ari Daniel takes a closer look. 
Let's start at the top of the economic pyramid. Here's Rebecca Riddell. Billionaires, for many of them, times have never been better. Riddell is the policy lead for economic and racial justice at Oxfam America. If you put their money in a room in 2020, and then you came back at the end of 2023, you would have found that the wealth has grown enormously, three times the rate of inflation. Much of this wealth is concentrated in the global north, in the U.S., Europe, Australia, and parts of Asia. And Riddell says that mega-corporations help generate inequality by funneling profits upwards to the ultra-rich. By squeezing workers, by dodging taxes, they're doing so at the expense of ordinary people. For lots of those ordinary people around the world, Riddell says this decade's been tough going. It opened with a pandemic that devastated lives and economies. Add to that the challenges of a really prolonged cost of living crisis, climate breakdown, and war. Progress against poverty has nearly stalled. According to Oxfam's report, since 2020, almost 5 billion people have become more poor. But Charles Kenny is skeptical. I'm not such a fan of the 5 billion people are worse off number. Kenny is with the Center for Global Development, and he says the way Oxfam got to that number is a bit misleading because it lumps people in vastly different situations together. What Oxfam computed was people's wealth, which is the value of everything someone owns minus everything they owe. But here's Charles Kenny's issue. He says, take someone who's just come out of Harvard Law School. Maybe they're earning a handsome salary at a big law firm, but on paper, they've got all that debt from school loans. So when you calculate their wealth, they seem more poor. But they're not worse off in terms of their life outcomes. They're not worse off in terms of how much they can afford to eat or are they getting decent health care. They've just borrowed more. Oxfam says these individuals are a small fraction of the five billion who are worse off. Most, they say, are really struggling to get by. But, Charles Kenny says, if you consider the last two, three decades, many of the poorest people in the world are actually better off. If you look at health, worldwide life expectancy continues to go up. If you look at education, the number of people in school continues to go up. So if you look at all these measures of the quality of life, they paint a slightly more positive picture, even though at the very top end we have extreme concentrations of wealth. Kenny doesn't dispute that poverty is a big global problem. The World Bank defines extreme poverty as someone who gets by on less than $2.15 per day. 700 million people meet that threshold. So what's to be done about the unequal distribution of riches? Oxfam's Rebecca Riddell says both business and the wealthy need to be better regulated. We need a rein in corporate power, and that includes breaking up monopolies. It's empowering workers, calling for a living wage, taxation on corporations and on the ultra-rich. But John Mukumumbaku says making all that happen, it's just not that realistic. He's an economist at Weber State University in Utah, originally from Cameroon. If you're going to have tax policy that would redistribute income in favor of the poor, especially in favor of the global poor, you're going to find it very difficult. And he says that's because the rich tend to be politically engaged and use their wealth to influence policymaking. Instead, Mbaku argues that governments in all countries should invest in free or low-cost health care and free education. Education should be considered by governments as an investment in human capital development, the future of your people, the future of your country. It's an intervention the Oxfam report suggests as well, saying that investing in people and communities provides, quote, the best bulwark against extreme corporate power. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Illinois is less than a month into enforcement of its new assault weapons ban. It is now illegal to sell or manufacture high-powered rifles like the AR-15 or AK-47 in Illinois. Those who already own assault weapons in the state can keep them, but they're required to register them. But as Alex Degman from member station WBEZ tells us, the vast majority of permit-holding Illinois gun owners are not complying. Driving north out of Springfield, it's hard to miss Aim to Shoot, where Doug Smitgold teaches concealed carry classes and sells guns out of his home. How you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Okay, can't complain. His farm sits you atop a hill where he mows inspirational messages that span the distance of several football fields. Today, it reads, you are great. Thank a vet. Push the release here. She slams forward, puts a live round in the chamber. Even before Illinois' new assault weapons ban, Smitkel's business wasn't focused on selling high-powered rifles. But still, he says the new law has hurt his business. It's already cut my gun sales down by 30 percent. He says he's transferring the few banned weapons he has out of state. Under the new law, anyone who already owned an assault rifle or other banned attachments prior to this year can keep them, but they have to fill out a form with Illinois State Police now. To register, people need an email address, state ID, and an Illinois firearm owner's ID. The whole process is online, and critics say that's frustrating for people in rural areas with poor internet service and seniors who don't have access at all. If you're caught with an unregistered weapon, it's a Class A misdemeanor. Smitkel says the policy is singling out law-abiding citizens. A criminal can't even sign up to register his gun, and what criminal is going to? They pass these guns around like Tic Tacs. Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the Protect Illinois Communities Act into law a year ago. It came in response to a mass shooting in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park, where a gunman killed seven people and injured more than 50 in the summer of 2022. But out of two and a half million gun permit holders in Illinois, only 29,000 people have registered assault weapons. Ron Hain is the sheriff in Kane County, about an hour west of Chicago. He says his department won't go door-to-door looking for unregistered guns, but someone would catch a charge if they're committing another crime. As long as we're on the the investigation of a crime, we have probable cause to be there, and we come across it, I thoroughly believe that they will approve enhanced criminal charges based on these firearms. Nearly three-quarters of Illinois sheriffs last year said they wouldn't enforce the law at all. Democratic State Senator Bill Cunningham co-chairs the panel that oversees the ban's implementation. He says it needs to be taken seriously. I'm a law and order guy, and I think police agencies should enforce the law. And I think any sheriffs or any law enforcement agency that refuses to enforce the law is guilty of dereliction of duty. Gun rights groups and conservative politicians have filed several lawsuits trying to block the law. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to delay its implementation, but the legal challenge is still pending. Doug Smith, gullet aimed to shoot, hopes the law will eventually fall. According to the Constitution and the Second Amendment, we have a right to bear arms. This government in this state doesn't seem to care about what the people want. The final rules for how the law should be implemented are still getting hashed out, and several questions remain, like how much authority state police have to regulate copycat guns that mimic existing assault weapons but are designed to get around the ban. Lawmakers hope to finalize the rules next week. For NPR News, I'm Alex Dagman in Springfield, Illinois.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this holiday Monday here at 90.9 WBUR. The first votes of the 2024 presidential election are going to be cast tonight in Iowa. Listen at 8 o'clock tonight for live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus right here at 90.9 WBUR. And coming up in about 15 minutes, we look at what sets the Iowa caucuses apart and why the U.S. primary system is such a patchwork. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. And Endless Energy, committed to installing proper insulation and keeping homes energy efficient. No-cost home assessments at GoEndlessEnergy.com. A cold night ahead, falling to the low to mid-20s. And we're back to the winter wet weather tomorrow. Should have some snow starting in the early morning hours. Likely light snow for much of the day tomorrow, with not a lot of accumulation. It all depends on where you are. Barely anything south of the city and on the Cape and Islands. An inch or two in Boston and right around it. Up to four inches north and west. The mid-20s, or make that the mid-30s tomorrow. Then Wednesday should be bright and sunny and dry again, only in the mid-20s. 32 degrees now in Boston at 449. I'm Robin Young. New parents are paying up to $300 for new baby monitors that measure breathing and heart rate. Pediatricians caution these aren't medical devices. They want a guarantee. They want to know if their baby's always going to be safe. In that regard, it, it can't. It can't give that assurance. Also, what's up with toddler formula? Next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. Happy dry January to those who celebrate. For those who've discovered that going a whole month without drinking any alcohol has been more excruciating than expected, we have help. NPR's Netta Ulabi brings us a music critic to explore songs about not drinking. At first, Sasha Fair-Jones was skeptical about this idea. Music, it sort of makes me drunk, and I don't want to think about sobriety when I listen to music. This is dumb. I don't like these songs. Freer Jones is a former critic for The New Yorker magazine. Make no mistake, this is serious to him. I'm coming up on five years sober, so this is all extremely personal to me. But even as an alcoholic in recovery, he says, his first instinct was to reject the idea of good songs about not drinking. Don't preach to me. Don't tell me what to do. Ew, gross. I don't want that in my music. What he wanted instead for many years was music like Elliot Smith's. That was my guy. I don't think anyone has ever written about drinking better than Elliot. Come on. This song, Clementine, is about a drunk passed out on a bar stool. They're waking you up to close the bar. That's the first line of the song. Like, stop it, Elliot. You're too good. How much information can you pack into one line? I thought it was saying to me, like, keep going, keep drinking, man. Like, you know who's at the bar when they close it? Elliot Smith. Elliot Smith, in this way, is a little like Amy Winehouse, a musician who makes it easy to glamorize being drunk. I like being drunk because it's like this song. Why would I not want to feel like this song? There are no better songs, so it must be okay to be an alcoholic. It should go without saying that Elliot Smith and Amy Winehouse are now dead. 
making it harder to romanticize songs about not going to rehab or waking up in a bar. That's not good. It's like one of the stories in the back of the big book, like, you know, I was the guy that they always had to wake up to close the bar. When it comes to good songs about not drinking, one of the first that occurs to Sasha Fair Jones is this one by Minor Threat the Washington, D.C. punk band Big in the 1980s and 90s. The reason we talk about straight-edge punks is because of this song. It's nearly impossible to make out the words, but the idea is that the singer has better things to do than get messed up. That's its own kind of rebellion. That's a version of sobriety. you got to do something when everyone else is doing something else. It was a completely different kind of song that turned out to be important to Sasha Fair Jones when he heard it in a psych ward in 2019, during a horrible time in his life. It was grim. It was like a movie grim. We were eating the institutional food. A lot of people in that room were extremely bad shape. And this amazing woman kept playing I'm Blessed. And the first time I heard it, I was like, Lady, this is a little too cheerful. Ask me how I'm doing, I'm blessed, yes. Living every moment, no regrets. Charlie Wilson, I love. I love his voice so much. I just love him. I had to just sort of get over myself and absorb it as a song. And I was sort of like, yeah, I am blessed. I'm here. In the 1970s, Charlie Wilson was the successful lead singer of the Gap Band with crossover R&B hits. Then came addiction to alcohol, cocaine, and crack. He ended up very unhoused and like in really, really dire, dire straits, like no joke stuff. He suffered greatly when he was using. But the singer met, then married, a drug counselor. He has been sober for decades. I think it is a sobriety song when he says riding clean. I think he means clean in the way that we mean clean. Riding clean, living dreams, just left the barber and I'm feeling like Midas. He's so happy. It definitely makes being sober sound pretty great. Probably the best known sobriety song, Gotta Be Sober by Pink. I don't wanna be the girl laughs the loudest. This song, Sober, was a pop hit in 2009. It was nominated for a Grammy. Pink has been open about past substance abuse. Here the lyrics are, it's so good till it goes bad. When it's good, then it's good, it's so good till it goes bad. Till you're trying to find the you that you And I've heard myself crying never again. And I don't think there's anyone who has gotten sober who doesn't understand every single word of this song. A lot of celebrity musicians have recently written songs with the same title, Sober. Definitely interesting. Pink, Demi Lovato, Kelly Clarkson, Lord. And Selena Gomez. The men don't have songs called Sober. The guys have to be like, What's a clever way of saying this? The women are more like, yeah, I got sober, here's my song. And, you know, the Demi Lovato one is really pretty raw. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why I do it every, every, every time it's only when I'm lonely. And in some ways, one of the most important because if it's too euphemistic, people ignore it. You know, Demi Lovato is just saying it out loud in plain language. The best current sobriety songs are not surprisingly in country, like That's Why I'm Here, I think is a really good song. And it was a hit for Kenny Chesney. I ain't had nothing to drink I knew that's probably what you think If I drop by this time of night That might be the single most AA meeting song I've ever heard. When he says That's Why I'm Here, it's one of the most clearly, like, I'm glad I am sober songs. You know, it's the simple things in life, like the kids at home and a loving wife that you miss the most when you lose control. It's the simple things in life 
like the kids at home and a loving wife that you miss the most when you lose control. And everything you love starts to disappear. And everything you love starts to disappear. Yeah, I've been there. That's why I'm here. I love that. I love that stuff. Songs about not drinking cut across genres. We obviously cannot get to all of them, but here's one more that Steven Tyler of Aerosmith wrote about recovering from addiction. It's called Amazing. Sasha Frere-Jones says there should be more songs like this one that are not serious or grim about getting sober. You're living this incredibly juicy, pleasurable, amazing life. I mean, there should be, like, songs about having sex sober. There should be songs about, and then I had all of my money when I woke up in the morning because I didn't spend it. And, like, complete gratitude. There is one sober song Sasha Frere-Jones wishes he could hear. The one Elliot Smith did not live long enough to write. A song about how good it feels to be sober and alive. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Snow has blanketed Washington, D.C. for the first time this winter, and much of the country is now in the grips of an Arctic blast. Minus 20 or so in most spots right now. Sleet as well, and the frigid conditions out there. And that dangerously cold territory if you go outside with any exposed skin, right? You need the hat, you need the mittens, you need the gloves, you need the scarf, you need everything to protect your skin. Snow and sleet in Oregon left more than 100,000 people without power over the weekend. Meanwhile, in Dickinson, North Dakota, it was negative 33 degrees Fahrenheit. With the wind, it felt like negative 70. And even far south of there, Austin, Texas set a new record daily low temperature today at 16 degrees. Officials are urging people to limit time outdoors, so stay inside if you can and please drive safely. And we are also sending warm wishes to our colleagues reporting on the Caucasus in Iowa, where it is more than 30 degrees below freezing. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Bruins shut out the New Jersey Devils this afternoon in a matinee at the Garden. Boston goalie Jeremy Swayman stopped all 31 shots that he faced. Tonight, the Celtics and Toronto Raptors will renew their Atlantic Division rivalry up in Toronto. 7.30 start time. Should be a cloudy, chilly night ahead tonight. A light snowfall sometime before daybreak tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-20s overnight. Snow flurries through the day tomorrow. Mixing with rain for the second part of the afternoon should wrap up up tomorrow night with accumulations just about two to four inches inland, one or two inches in Boston, and a dusting, if that, south of the city. This is WBUR. It's 459.
I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Iowa caucuses have arrived, and it is freezing out there, so Republican candidates are pushing people to turn out to vote anyway. If you're sick, if you're just so sick, you can't turn it. I don't think, get up, get up. You get up, you're voting. How sub-zero temperatures in Iowa may affect the vote count, coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Israel has vowed to destroy Hamas and claims almost every day that the country is winning the war. But what has Israel's military achieved, and can it defeat Hamas militarily? And most cities are trying to understand how heat gets stored in concrete and how that affects a neighborhood's temperature. An effort to map urban heat islands in Oklahoma City revealed some surprises. A really treed neighborhood is still pretty hot compared to some of these other neighborhoods that we were expecting to be very hot. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from the Iowa caucuses, I'm Jack Spear. Voting is set to begin here in cold, snowy Iowa in just a few hours. The Iowa caucuses kicking off what essentially is the opening of the months-long contest for Republican presidential primary process. Minnesota Public Radio's Clay Master says as of this moment, despite what some polls say, the contest is undecided for some Iowa voters. I've been at a couple events for DeSantis and Haley in the last couple of days. A lot of the folks that are showing up are decided or they're volunteering, but you still find people like the last two caucus cycles I covered who are still trying to make up their minds. There's a lot of kind of a foregone conclusion feeling that the former president has it in the bag, but the one thing almost every Republican caucus goer has in common when I talk to them over the last few months is that they say don't believe the polls. Reporter Clay Masters, and while those polls show former President Trump well in front here, it is far less certain in terms of two other candidates, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Of course, there are plenty of Iowa voters who have made up their minds. Earlier today, I talked with Matt Lautner, who owns a cattle breeding business in Adel, Iowa. He owns 200 cows and bulls and strongly supports former President Trump. It's not intellectual, really. For me, it's just simple. I want to take care of my family, and I don't have to worry about stuff costing twice as much as it did several years ago. Inflation has really gotten out of hand, and it just is what it is. Lautner, like many Iowans, is worried about the economy. He's also strongly concerned about security at the U.S. border. He said family is another key priority for him. Doing some last-minute campaigning ahead of tonight's caucuses in Iowa, Nikki Haley spoke for less than five minutes at her second Countdown to Caucus event in Pella, Iowa today. I know you're more excited that it's caucus day than I am because this means no more TV commercials, no more mail, all of those other things. But we have really spent the last 11 months touching every hand. Haley, along with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, also needs to do well tonight ahead of the New Hampshire primary, which is later this month. The Iowa caucuses, as we mentioned, kick off in just a few hours and with it the 2024 presidential election season. NPR's Domenica Montanaro says this election is bigger than just a potential rematch between President Biden and former President Trump. 
In many respects, this election fundamentally comes down to what it means to be American. You're going to have two very different visions for the country presented, as we do in all presidential elections, and they're all consequential. Presidents can affect social policy through the courts and legislation that can reshape the country. They can start wars or end them, embrace a role of leadership on the world stage, or retreat from it. We're at a volatile moment in American politics, and voters are about to start pointing in which direction they want the country to go. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Of course, still unknown this evening is how much of a factor the weather will be in turnout for the caucuses. Right now, the mercury hovering around zero. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Events are being held today to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on his holiday. Boston's annual ML King Breakfast was held at the convention center at the seaport. Governor Maura Healey was among the political leaders to address the crowd. She raised concerns about democracy and the future of the nation. We know there are forces out there and people out there around this country who are looking to take us backwards, who are looking to take away rights and freedoms. We are not going to let that happen, not on our watch. This morning is a testimony and a testament to that. Healy announced a new effort to increase state contracts with diverse businesses. The governor says her administration is establishing an advisory board for the state supplier diversity office. Reverend Willie Broderick is the senior pastor at the 12th Baptist Church in Boston. That's where Dr. King preached when he lived in the city in the 1950s. Broderick tells WBUR's Radio Boston that the holiday is a time for people to renew their efforts to protect civil rights. We are fighting uh, for the lives of so many who have been oppressed, who have been harmed, who have been hurt, those who have not felt remedy to their harm, but also for those who, who have given great sacrifice. That's Reverend Willie Bodrick. Boston University hosted a commemoration with the city. King earned his Ph.D. in philosophy from Boston University's School of Theology in 1955. Gasoline prices in Massachusetts are steadily declining. AAA Northeast says averages statewide are down $0.04 cents from last week to $3.13 a gallon. But AAA spokesperson Mark Sheldrop says that more than half of other states are paying less than $3 a gallon. We also have two refineries that serve the Northeast. Those were down for an extended period of time. In the fall, for extended maintenance, that was deferred for a bit. They're back online and operational, but we're still feeling a little bit of the effects from that supply pinch we had uh, in the autumn. Shieldrop says he's not confident gas prices here will fall below $3 a gallon because they tend to rise at the end of January into the following months before summer. In the Boston area right now, it is 35 degrees. Look for some snow flurries late tonight or early tomorrow morning. Should have flurries through the day tomorrow, mixing with some rain for the second part of the afternoon. Should all wrap up by tomorrow night. Accumulations should be about 2 to 4 inches inland, 1 to 2 inches in Boston. Maybe a dusting, if that, south of the city. High temperatures in the mid-30s. Wednesday, no rain or snow, just a lot of sunshine, but windy and cold, about 30 degrees for a high. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Later this evening, Iowa voters will make their way to more than 1,600 caucus sites across their state to cast the first votes in the Republican presidential primary. Former President Donald Trump is the frontrunner there and will be looking for a strong finish ahead of fellow Republicans Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. NPR political correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben will be with Trump this evening in Des Moines. Hey, Danielle. Hey there. So, Danielle, I know you have been keeping an eye on the former president there in Iowa. Tell us, what have you been hearing and seeing over the last few days? Well, first of all, not as much as expected. That's because Trump had only one in-person rally over the weekend. There were three that the campaign canceled due to the extreme weather. Uh, You may have heard it's a little chilly out here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. but at that one rally in Indianola that Trump had, it, it was what has what we can count as a pretty typical Trump speech, although he did go on for a bit longer than usual. People started trailing out before the end of it. But there was just lots of bluster, lots of taunting of his rivals, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. And in short, Trump is confident. The well-regarded Iowa poll came out over the weekend and had him way ahead. And I've talked to a lot of Trump voters over the last few days. They're enthusiastic, but above all, so many of them are loyal. They've just said that they, so many of them said they just never considered other candidates. Interesting. And you mentioned that polling has former President Trump way ahead out in front of his rivals in the state. So is he expecting a big win there in Iowa? I mean, possibly, you might even say probably, but he's also telling his supporters not to get complacent, given his strong polling and also not to mention the weather. This is what he said in his speech in Indianola. We got to do it. We got to do it big. You got to get out. You can't sit home. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, I got to make it. Even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it, remember? Now, the worst of the weather is over. It got all the way above zero today. But many of the roads are still slippery, and you got to remember, a lot of Iowans live on gravel roads out in really rural areas, so it might be tougher for them to get to the caucuses. So Trump is really encouraging people to get out there, and it's unclear how weather will affect things. So even if he's confident, even if he's polling well, he doesn't just want to win. He wants as big a win as possible. So, Danielle, as voters across the state of Iowa do indeed head out to those caucus sites with all of that weather you've been talking about, tell us What are you watching for this evening? Well, first of all, if polls are to be believed again, Trump does have that strong lead. So should he win? The first question is how big is his margin? But also, what are the margins like between second and third place? However that comes out will affect how the candidates campaign in New Hampshire and beyond. A strong finish in Iowa for U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley or Florida Governor Ron DeSantis means more momentum for them or for any candidate, for that matter, coming out of Iowa. But beyond that, just turnout. How enthused are people this year? And once again, how much will the weather keep them home? How how well can they get out there? How much might they just decide to hang back? How much do they believe that the polls say that Trump just has an insurmountable lead? Danielle, thank you. Thank you. That's Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR political correspondent reporting from Des Moines.
We're going to look now at what Israel says its military has done toward its stated goal of destroying Hamas. It has been just over 100 days since Hamas attacked Israel, killing about 1,200 people and kidnapping more than 200 others. Israel's response since October 7th has been a ground, sea, and air offensive that has killed thousands of Palestinians. The United Nations says nearly 2 million more have been displaced. Israel says it's on the way to eliminating Hamas. NPR's Kerry Kahn examines that claim. To prove their claims, Israel's military often points to its biggest trophies in the war after more than three months of fighting, Hamas's notorious tunnel network. This is why we're fighting. Major Daron Spielman, with about a dozen journalists in tow, heads to Israel's biggest tunnel discovery to date. Passing through a section of the concrete border barrier blown out by Hamas fighters on October 7th, we move on to Gaza's sandy soil. Drones buzz overhead. Right now we're in Gaza and we're heading into an opening. We're looking into a shaft that looks like a subway, single subway tunnel. After going about 100 feet down what looks like a rusty drainage pipe, the huge concrete tunnel opens up. Wiring and ventilation run its length, snaking past two armed soldiers, disappearing into the dark. So the tunnel itself is two and a half miles, 2.4 miles long. There are along this tunnel shafts that are going down with ladders to underground command centers, 170 feet into the earth where they're storing weapons, going through maps and planning their attacks. Spielman says hundreds of miles of tunnels run under all of Gaza. Cars drove through this one, he says, to and from Gaza City. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your group to exit the tunnel, please. Under strict military control, we emerge back on the surface and in the distance can see blown out buildings amidst huge plumes of smoke rising above nearby Gaza City. These tunnels are best seen and dismantled and cleaned out from terrorists by people on the ground. But you know the death toll in Gaza. It's over 20,000, and that's just what they can count. Is this really the only way to prosecute the war? We would love to have uh, a better way. And I know we don't want to kill civilians. And they're a very unfortunate consequence of Hamas having spent so many years building underneath their feet. If anyone has a better idea, I think we would love to hear it. That logic makes no sense to 30-year-old Palestinian Mohammed Hamdan. He's cleaning up rubble after a recent Israeli airstrike leveled his neighbor's home, killing the family. He asks why destroy everything above ground. Go underground and fight Hamas, he says. We are not Hamas. They are not dying. The people are. According to Gaza's health ministry, the death toll has now topped 23,000, with more than 60,000 injured. Israel's leaders push on, though, insisting a military victory can be achieved, something military experts question. Daniel Byman at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington says Israel's military is winning, but with many caveats. Israel has destroyed a lot of tunnels, but it has also seen how vast Hamas's underground network grew over the years. Bayman is also cautious about Israel's claims to have killed many top commanders and as many as 8,000 Hamas fighters. 
Hamas continues to retain, you know, the majority of its fighters. It continues to retain significant military capacity. But after several months of fighting, Israel has made a dent in it. He says the definition of a fighter is debatable, too. Young, angry men in a neighborhood picking up a gun is much different than a trained militant. And with some Hamas troop estimates as high as 40,000, 80% of the force could still be on the ground. Samir Gattas is a Gaza expert based in Cairo. We can say that statements from both sides have been exaggerated, he says. Israel's military control over northern Gaza was quick, and rocket fire from Gaza has slowed dramatically, he adds. But Gattas, who runs the Middle East Forum for Strategic Studies and National Security in Egypt, says while Hamas's weapons stockpiles have been reduced, they remain significant. With military capability to fight for one or two months well into February, he adds. This indicates that the outlook will be tougher for Israel's military and more destructive for Gazans, as the battleground has shifted to cities teeming with displaced Palestinians ordered to move by Israel. Aron Bregman, who teaches at the War Studies Department at King's College London, says Hamas will just embed deeper into that population, breaking into smaller insurgent groups harder for Israel to find. They are better trained, the Israelis, in fighting regular armies than fighting insurgency. And they will find it very difficult, the Israelis, if they do stay in the Gaza Strip, to do counterinsurgency. The problem is that there's 2.2 million civilians in the Gaza Strip. James Rands is a military analyst with the defense intelligence company Jane's. You can't just keep moving them around indefinitely. So that final blow against Hamas to actually destroy them probably isn't going to be feasible. He says the way to end an insurgency is to offer people hope for a better future. Rand says most of Hamas's fighting force remains, and there are still plenty of tunnels left, too, he says, for militants to hide and regroup. Many Israelis fighting the war agree, like 37-year-old Omri Erental in a Jerusalem hospital after being shot early this month searching a tunnel. At least 185 Israeli soldiers have been killed so far in Gaza. A group of rabbis bless Erental while making rounds through the hospital. Omri Nisim. A Hamas fighter shot Erental at the tunnel's entrance he had discovered in an open orange grove. My luck, I fell backwards and not forwards, not into the tunnel. The bullet went through his cheek, broke his jaw, exited and lodged in his shoulder. He says he won't stop until Hamas is totally defeated. They surprised us in October 7th. But uh, we'll rise and we'll win. And if winning means eliminating Hamas, experts say the fight will continue to be destructive and deadly. The Israeli military has said it will keep troops in Gaza through 2024. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Jerusalem.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, British Liberian writer Hisham Matar is out with a new novel. It's called My Friends, and it explores how political upheaval shapes the most intimate and private relationships. That story is coming up at about 5.55 on WBUR. Vacant lab space in Greater Boston has hit an all-time high. The real estate services and investment firm CBRE tells the Boston Business Journal that life science lab vacancies have shot past 10 percent, reaching a level not seen in nearly two decades. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. And Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away, with over 700 artifacts from the Holocaust, opens this March in Boston, the AuschwitzExhibition.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. The first votes of the 2024 presidential presidential election will be cast tonight in Iowa. Listen tonight at 8 o'clock for live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus right here at 90.9 WBUR. Working on your fitness in the new year? Join us at City Space two weeks from tonight, Monday, January 29th, for a boxing night featuring strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Clouds overnight tonight, some snow early tomorrow, flurries causing slick roads during the day tomorrow, missing, uh, mixing with rain later in the day, up around 37 degrees, not much accumulation around. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. There's a handful of states that have Democratic governors and Republican-controlled legislatures. Kentucky is one of them. Its Democratic governor, Andy Bashir comfortably won re-election last year. And Democrats there see an opportunity to win back political ground in the Republican-dominated statehouse. One Democratic group is planning to pour millions of dollars into these races across the country, but the question remains if Democrats can find enough candidates. Sylvia Goodman from Kentucky Public Radio reports. Katrina Sexton is a school board member in rural Kentucky, but this year she's running for the state House of Representatives and showed up less than an hour before the deadline to file her candidacy. I've had some people, you know, push and encourage me to do it. And, uh, you know, I feel like that it's important that people have a choice. She's a Democrat running in a district that hasn't had a Democratic candidate since 2018. 
She says she's running even if she's not sure she has a chance. I just felt like people needed to have a voice, needed to have a choice in who they're electing instead of just one person on the ballot. I know it's a, a long haul to try and, and overturn that. A national group is planning to raise $60 million to support Democratic legislative candidates this year. And they say about 30 percent of that will go to candidates in red states. O.B. Rahman is communications director at the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. He says the group is paying special attention to states that have Republican-led legislatures and Democratic governors. In Kentucky, like, there's definitely a path with Andy Bashir. He showed that there's a path to, like, really building infrastructure. When Governor Bashir won re-election last year, Democrats wondered if his success might be a roadmap for regaining a foothold in other red states. Republicans heavily invested in state races in recent decades, controlling two-thirds of legislative chambers in 2016. But Democrats are trying to make a comeback, flipping 10 chambers since then. Rahman says having more Democratic lawmakers, even without totally flipping control, means more power for Democratic governors. There are states where the governor's veto is basically overridden, and then Republicans are able to do basically whatever they want in those states because of that. In Kentucky, Democrats have a long way to go, with Republicans holding 80 percent of legislative seats. Democrats say they've worked hard to recruit candidates in key areas, especially districts that Bashir won in November. But after the filing deadline, Democrats only fielded candidates for 57 out of 100 seats in the state House of Representatives. But it's not for lack of trying, says Democratic State Representative Sherilyn Stevenson, who led recruitment efforts. I would like to let them have a look at my spreadsheet of how many phone calls have been made, how many people have been chased. The number is astounding. The DLCC says their investments depend on whether state parties can prove they're able to put up a fight. Stevenson says it's hard fielding candidates in a lot of these districts. Democrats have faced a deluge of negative ads and mailers from Republican groups in recent years. We believe that a lot of folks have the wrong idea. They're listening to only one side of cable news and we feel like we have been demonized a ton. Come November, 40 percent of legislative seats will be totally uncontested in Kentucky, and the vast majority of those will go straight to Republicans. But one of the Democrats taking a chance is Rob Adams, a retired firefighter paramedic from Carrollton. After about 10 years as mayor, he's running for state representative. I knocked on every door, every door, every apartment, walked the streets myself, did it myself, didn't expect anybody to do it for me. Adams is a Democrat. But this is the first time he has to run with his party affiliation next to his name in a district where the Republican incumbent won nearly 70 percent of the vote two years ago. I know we're up against that, especially in, in a presidential race. But I hope that I can get my message across to them that I'm truly only doing this for the people of the 47th district. Democrats like Adams are trying to avoid the long coattails of the presidential race. Though Governor Bashir comfortably won re-election here last year, President Joe Biden's approval rating drags far behind. For NPR News, I'm Sylvia Goodman in Frankfort, Kentucky. The third Monday of each January celebrates the life of civil rights champion Martin Luther King Jr. While today is a reminder to Americans to be of service to their communities, the road to getting the holiday established was marked by controversy. NPR's Alana Weiss reports. Almost immediately after MLK was gunned down at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, supporters began calling for an official holiday to celebrate the civil rights giant. But it would take another 15 years for a president to sign the holiday into law. I remember this 
time frame very well. That was Clarissa Myrick Harris, professor of Africana Studies at Morehouse College in Atlanta. She was in her early teens when King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. Four days later, Congressman John Conyers introduced legislation on the U.S. House floor to establish a federal holiday honoring King. But of course, it did went nowhere at that point in time. While Martin Luther King today is widely revered for his work in social justice, that wasn't the case in the 1960s. A 1963 Gallup poll found that 41% of American adults viewed King unfavorably. The percentage of Americans who disapproved of King spiked to 69% by the mid-60s as King's profile rose. You have to understand, you know, much of the country did not want integration, uh, they did not want equal rights. They did not want equity for everyone, every group in this country, or marginalized people, uh, and certainly not people of color. So that, unfortunately, was the case. There was pushback for establishing a national holiday for King. Meanwhile, the slave-owning Confederate General Robert E. Lee has had a holiday in states as early as 1917. Two states, Mississippi and Alabama, still celebrate King Lee Day as a joint celebration of the two men. You have to keep in mind also that at the time of his death, Martin Luther King Jr. was not the most popular person even in the Black community. Despite the controversy that surrounded King both in life and death, there were vocal supporters of making a federal holiday to commemorate his life and service. Among the biggest supporters in this pursuit were King's wife, civil rights leader Coretta Scott King, and musician and humanitarian Stevie Wonder. Emory University associate professor Crystal Sanders said this. The King Center led that move to continue fighting for this federal holiday, and they got support from I would say a unlikely source, but it shows us the ways in which using the support of musicians and other members of pop culture can be relevant in political campaigns. Um, Stevie Wonder releases the song Happy Birthday in 1981 to galvanize national support for a King holiday. Two years after the song's release, a bill to commemorate the holiday passed with bipartisan support. It was signed into law by President Reagan to be celebrated on the third Monday in January each year. At the first official celebration of the holiday in 1986, Stevie Wonder would once again perform in King's honor. Alana Wise, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Cities are trying to understand how heat gets stored in concrete to better understand why some neighborhoods get so much hotter than others. That story is coming up in about 10 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality. 
February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can, too, at WBUR.org legacy. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Amid frigid temperatures in Iowa, Republicans are set to pick their presidential nominee in the first in-the-country caucuses that get underway tonight. Party officials are worried about the turnout, though, because of the stream cold. And the temperature at the last check, at last check rather, it was zero with a wind chill of 20 below zero in Des Moines. Iowa caucuses are different from primaries because voters have to show up at their local site, listen to speeches for the candidates, and then vote. Former President Donald Trump, the apparent frontrunner ahead of tonight's vote, spent the day slamming his rivals, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, who appear to be running for second place. Haley was asked if DeSantis should drop out if he comes in third place. I mean, that's for Ron to decide. I've never said when somebody should get out of the race. It's very personal to get into a race like this. It's very personal to get out. We've been focused on our race. And DeSantis had advice for his supporters. You're never going to have an opportunity to have your vote pack more of a punch than it will tonight. Caucusing gets underway at 8 p.m. Eastern time. The United Nations is warning that Gaza urgently needs more aid or its desperate population will suffer widespread famine and disease. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. While there have been some steps to increase the flow of humanitarian assistance into Gaza, Life-saving relief is not getting to people who have endured months of relentless assault at anywhere near the scale needed. Authorities in the enclave say the death toll in the Israeli-Hamas war has surpassed 24,000. UN officials say aid delivery is hampered by the opening of too few border crossings, a slow vetting process for trucks and goods going into Gaza, and continued fighting. Most of Gaza's 2.3 million population has been displaced. This is NPR News. Houthi rebels launched a missile that hit a U.S.-owned cargo ship off the coast of Yemen today. It comes less than a day after the Iranian-backed militia group fired an anti-ship cruise missile toward an American destroyer in the Red Sea. The Houthis say today's attack is in response to U.S.-led strikes on the militia. The Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea amid Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza has roiled global shipping. Homeless people are coping with brutal cold across much of the country this Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports the holiday is causing additional hardships on some. In Kansas City, the temperature will top out at about 4 degrees, with wind chills well below zero. Marvin Gaddy, a 64-year-old black man who's been on the streets for years, doesn't like shelters. The library he normally uses to warm up is closed for the holiday. So most of the homeless people, they go to the library. We're, we're just out. We're trying to find a place to stay warm until we can get back in the shelter. Homeless shelters are running at capacity and starting to deal with frostbite. They're seeing people come in without coats, gloves, or even shoes. A surge in COVID cases is aggravating the crisis. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. 
And I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. There's a winter weather advisory in effect from 7 to 9 through 7 tomorrow. Should have flurries through the day tomorrow, mixing with rain. That could cause streets and sidewalks to be coated with a light glaze, so be careful out there. Boston Bruins come back to the Garden this afternoon. They had a home game against the New Jersey Devils, and they shut them down. It was 3 nothing Bruins. 7.30 tip-off time tonight for the Boston Celtics on the road up north to take on the Toronto Raptors. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Tonight, the waxing moon will be right around the shiny planet Jupiter. Moon should have a lovely glow on the unlit portion. It's sunlight that's bounced off the Earth, otherwise known as Earth shine. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis, better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Elsewhere in the show, we have been talking through the politics of the Iowa caucuses, but let's take a minute, step back, and talk about the way we get here to an elected president, like the actual process. Why do we vote this way? Why does it go on so long? And why is Iowa first at all instead of, say, New Hampshire or Arizona or literally anywhere else in the country? To help us unpack these questions, we will now go to NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, who is our guide to all things politics, as always. Hi, Domenico. (laughs) Hey there. I'll do my best. (laughs) All right. So, Domenico, big picture. Let's get started. Why do we put ourselves through this months-long primary process? Well, I mean, ironically, the super lengthy process with a campaign that's now been going on for more than a year, by the way, was actually designed to give voters more of a say. You know, it wasn't that long ago when party leaders were really the ones who picked the nominees. New Hampshire has taken pride in holding the first primary for more than 100 years now. But Iowa only wound up holding the first caucuses about 50 years ago. And really, it was only by virtue of how long their process takes. All right, let's get into it here. How did this current primary calendar actually come to be? Really dates back to the Vietnam War era. 1968 was a seminal year in American society and politics for so many reasons. I mean, today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. King was assassinated that year. Four months later, anti-war protests broke out at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. They turned violent. 10,000 people had been there to protest, drew harsh response from the city. More than 600 protesters were arrested. They really wanted these protesters, Eugene McCarthy, who was an anti-war candidate to be the nominee, but he never really had a chance. Inside the convention center, Democrats were nominating Vice President Hubert Humphrey to be the party's nominee, despite not running in a single primary. Hmm. So primaries were really basically just suggestions back then. All right, connect the dots for us. Where does Iowa come into the picture? Well, the party made several reforms that year to try to avoid the mess that took place in 68 and created a primary process where the nominee had to be decided by June and the states and territories would have a say. 
Well, because Iowa's convoluted process took so many months to pick delegates from precinct caucuses to county and state conventions, it wound up needing to go very early before anyone else went, including New Hampshire, by the way. That irritated New Hampshire. The two states kind of came up with this detente, this deal where Iowa could hold the first caucuses, New Hampshire the first primary. All right. So they made this deal back in the 70s, and it's stayed in place since. Why? Well, it stuck because the candidates started leveraging Iowa for momentum. In 72, South Dakota uh, Senator George McGovern, his campaign exploited this idea that you should be able to beat expectations in Iowa. And he wound up doing it and wound up winning the Democratic nomination. He got blown out in the general election. But the fact that the strategy worked led Iowa Republicans to hold their first caucuses four years later in 76. Jimmy Carter, the Democrat who wound up becoming president, former governor of Georgia, expanded on McGovern's strategy to kind of gain some momentum momentum and uh, uh, name identification campaign widely in the state. So now we have this arms race of not only which state goes first, but how much the candidates are willing to spend to get that momentum and attention from these early states. That's why this year more than $123 million has been spent in Iowa alone on ads out of $270 million overall, almost half of all the ad spending so far. And Domenico, this year things changed a bit for voters on the Democratic side, at least. Pretty unusual. Yeah. And, you know, there's always rumblings that there could be uh, more changes. um, But Iowa and New Hampshire were kind of demoted to get a more diverse set of states. But traditions hard to change overall, especially ones that are decades, if not more than a century old when it comes to New Hampshire. Before I let you go, last thing, taking it back to tonight's election. When will we find out who Iowa chose? Well, the caucuses start at 8 p.m. Eastern time. We don't make calls at NPR. We follow the Associated Press, which provides results to us. They reported the earliest results in 2016 at 8.32 p.m. Weren't finished voting, uh, counting until almost 1 a.m. 10.26 p.m. is when, by the way, Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, was named the winner of the Republican Iowa caucuses. So we'll see. NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. Global warming is driven primarily by burning fossil fuels, and it pushed temperatures so high last year that scientists were astounded. In fact, last year was the hottest on record. Cities are now trying to prepare for how to handle increasingly hot temperatures. As Brittany Cordera with member station KGOU reports, Oklahoma City is turning to heat mapping for clues. Hungron Lee attaches two devices to the windows of her car. This one's the particle sensor. She and her daughter are helping researchers on this rainy August day to take air quality and temperature readings around Oklahoma City. Lee researches air quality at the University of Oklahoma. Last year, Oklahoma City joined over a dozen cities in a national heat mapping project. Community members just like Lee helped record data that could be used to help cities understand the impacts of extreme heat. We want to take a deeper look for the heat stress, uh, like in the communities. The community-based is the uh, most appropriate way to understand the heat stress better. The data collected last August showed downtown Oklahoma City was 15 degrees hotter than the suburbs. I'm walking through my neighborhood near downtown. I was surprised to find out that this area with its giant sycamore trees got pretty warm last summer. Sarah Terikovo led last year's efforts to map heat. She works in the city's Office of Sustainability. Terikovo says my neighborhood, Mesta Park, was one of the hottest areas in Oklahoma City. A really treed neighborhood like Mesta Park is still pretty hot compared to some of these other neighborhoods that we were expecting to be very hot. Trees don't always provide enough cooling. That's because heat gets trapped in roofs, roads, and sidewalks. It creates what's called the urban heat island effect. Terry Kobo and I walked around downtown last summer to capture thermal images on our phone. Oh, look at this. 
I just love the contrast with the sidewalk at 92 degrees, 93 degrees. And then this big old, maybe it's a spruce, I'm not sure, at 85. She was surprised by how different the temperatures were between the sidewalk and the prairie habitat at Myriad Botanical Gardens. Her camera reveals the cooler temperatures in blue and purple. So what we're seeing right now in the Myriad Gardens is a great example of a potential cooling strategy for urban heat islands. Cooling strategies are what can come from understanding the hottest parts of urban areas. Last summer, 14 cities, including Oklahoma City, worked with NOAA and citizen scientists to map where the urban heat islands are. Joey Williams is with Kappa Heat Watch. The program provides the equipment for the urban heat island project and the results. Williams says the project started in 2017 and help cities make plans for how to address extreme heat. As the threat of heat continues to rise and people become more aware that heat is an issue and life-threatening and it affects different people differently, having this just kind of awareness can be a lifesaver. Sustainability offices in cities are taking the results from last summer's mapping to develop ways to adapt to heat. Kansas City, Missouri has already done this, using its past data to show where it lacked tree canopy. Andy Savastino with the City Sustainability Office says the heat mapping helped inform a new policy. Anytime a developer wants to come in, particularly into areas where you've got old uh, forest growth, our tree preservation ordinance, uh, which we never had one before, now applies so that there is some requirement for developers to replace some percentage of what they take down. Oklahoma City's heat mapping campaign found the city needs more trees and less parking lots to help cool off neighborhoods. And the city is working on a guidebook this year to help leaders figure out the best ways to adapt to extreme heat, like changing parking zoning laws or restoring natural habitat. For NPR News, I'm Brittany Cordera in Oklahoma City. This is All Things Considered. In the early hours today, Guatemala's new president was finally sworn into office. It was a moment that nearly didn't happen. Despite winning the election by a landslide back in August, anti-corruption campaigner Bernardo Arevalo faced months of opposition from political opponents. And those efforts to prevent the transfer of power continued right up until the last minute yesterday. NPR's Ader Peralta reports. In Guatemala City, the morning started off hopeful. Big groups of indigenous people came into the city on buses, across the boulevards, musicians played on stages, and kids carried balloons. An inauguration felt inevitable. But the celebration came to an end first in Congress. The outgoing Congress chained doors and threw up parliamentary roadblocks to keep the new Congress from taking office. The young, idealistic people who had just won elections forced open the door and began shouting, respect the popular will. In Guatemala City's main plaza, that video ricocheted across cell phones and indigenous authorities called for a march. Protesters rammed through a security perimeter. Viva Guatemala! Viva! Viva! Arábalo! Irma de Viegues, a lady in her 60s, stood just behind the crowd, hugging the Guatemalan flag, marveling at what was happening. We used to be few, she says, but now look, 
all of Guatemala is here. The Guatemalan American writer Francisco Goldman calls what's happening in Guatemala a civic miracle. Somehow, the young urban progressives and the rural indigenous communities that make up about half this country formed a coalition and outsmarted a system that had been rigging elections for decades. They made a reformist anti-corruption candidate president. So the focus, says Goldman, has been on Bernardo Arevalo. But he says, look at the streets. The most hopeful thing in Guatemala is not Arevalo per se. The most hopeful thing in Guatemala is the democratic awakening that brought him there. Maybe it was the street protests. Maybe it was a statement calling for a transition from the dignitaries who had waited for hours. But the congressional roadblocks melted away suddenly at around 10 p.m. And as the firecrackers exploded in the middle of the streets, Rigoberto Juarez, an indigenous leader who's been jailed by the government for his activism, walked through the smoke with a smile on his face. For 200 years, he says, this country has tried to destroy his people. And it's about denying us any action, any credit. But today, he says, they couldn't do it. Juarez, who was once feared as a guerrilla fighter in the city, walked through a mostly mestizo crowd, and a lady holding flowers told him, without the indigenous people, Arevalo would not be taking the oath of office right now. Rigoberto Juarez said, prepare for a long fight. If today was possible, imagine, he said, what tomorrow will bring. Peter Palta, Impair News, Guatemala City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Turning cloudy and cold overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-20s should have some snowfall early tomorrow, continuing during the day. May not amount to too much on the ground, but forecasters say it should mix in with some rain, especially in the afternoon. That, combined with chilly temperatures, could cause some slipping and sliding on the roads. Be especially careful tomorrow morning and maybe during tomorrow evening's commute as well. Then the sunshine is back for Wednesday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. The first votes of the 2024 presidential election are going to be cast in Iowa tonight. Listen tonight at 8 o'clock on WBUR for our live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus right here at 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues. It's 549. Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. One of the perks of living here is that the greater Boston area has a lot of old-fashioned independent movie houses. There's the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, the Somerville Theater in Davis Square in Somerville, and the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, which is in Cambridge. The theaters show both mainstream and art cinema, as well as host a number of screenings for local film festivals. For more on the indie movie theater scene here and for other tips about navigating Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. Novelist Hisham Mater won the Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for his memoir, The Return. He grew up in exile in London, and in that book, he told the story of his journey back to Libya in search of his father, who had been imprisoned during the dictatorship of Muammar Gaddafi. Politics, persecution, and resistance are recurring themes in his work, but so are paintings, libraries, and friendships. Hisham Mater's new novel is called My Friends. NPR's Bilal Qureshi has its story and a warning. This piece contains the sounds of gunfire. In April of 1984, protesters assembled outside the Libyan embassy in London. A window opened and a gunman fired into the crowd. Eleven Libyan demonstrators were wounded and a policewoman, Yvonne Fletcher, was killed. Britain severed diplomatic ties with Libya for years. When this happened, I was about 13, so I was younger than my protagonists. And I remember Bilal seeing it on the news, and I remember how it marked me. You know, I remember one of the characters, one of the characters, no, he's now one of my characters, but one of the real people who had been shot, falling on the ground and calling out for his mother. I remember that really affected me as a 13-year-old. And later on when I thought, I would really, really love to write a big dramatic novel about something as private and intimate as a friendship. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have them go through that event that had marked me so much? In the new novel, My Friends, Mother's central character is an international student from Libya named Khalid. He's visiting London in April of 1984 and finds his life upended by that protest. He's shot and marked as a dissident, unable to return home. He is thrust into an unchosen life. And the book is really about the ways in which he manages this fate, along with his now chosen family, his friends. The novel begins in present-day London, in the aftermath of the 2011 Arab Spring. Khalid is saying goodbye to one of his closest Libyan friends. He now knows he'll never see again. And in the wake of this powerful farewell, Khalid decides to walk home to Shepherd's Bush in West London. It takes about, if you walk it straight, about an hour and a half, but he meanders. He goes by places that have meant so much to, uh, to him, including the square where, St. James's Square, where the Libyan embassy used to be and where the shooting was. And he really tells, on this nocturnal walk, he tells the history of this friendship. And the whole book is told on that walk. My Friends is Hisham Matar's third novel. It may seem to have a ripped-from-the-headlines premise, but Matar rejects the idea that he's written an Arab Spring novel. My book is, of course, about partly about those things, but I think what it's really about is about questions of proximity. How, for example... The closer you get to somebody, the more mysterious they seem to be. That you know, I could be I could be sitting right beside my wife looking at the same painting, and I have no idea what she's seeing or what it is evoking in her. You know, and this is the person that I know best in my life. So I've always found that fascinating that the closer we get to somebody, the more unknowable they seem to be on some level. 
I mean, even even the way the book opens, it opens with that question, you know, the question of what might be inside somebody's heart, you know. When I was going to ask you, do you have the book with you, right? I was going to ask. You. I do, but that that first page is in my in my you know it's in my memory because it was mm. the first first thing that I wrote of the book, and I carried it with me for for a few years before I wrote the book. It was that ra- first page was really the first sort of note, <laughs> you know, and everything came out from it. So yeah, that happily uh, recited to you. Yeah. It is, of course impossible to be certain of what is contained in anyone's chest, least of all one's own, or those we know well, perhaps especially those we know best. But, as I stand here on the upper level of King's Cross Station, from where I can monitor my old friend Hossam Zua walking across the concourse, I feel I'm seeing right into him, perceiving him more accurately than ever before. As though all along, during the two decades that we have known one another, our friendship has been a study. And now, ironically, just after we had bid one another farewell, his portrait is finally coming into view. His portrait is finally coming into view. It's so good. I mean, it's just amazing. It just immediately feels like home and it feels like somewhere I want to be. Uh, and somewhere that helps me know me better than I know myself and know others and that space between us. Khalid Abdallah is a British Egyptian actor who feels deeply at home in Matar's words. He voiced the audiobooks of his two previous novels and presented both his memoirs, A Month in Siena and The Return on the BBC. In 1973, before I turned three, my father handed in his resignation from his UN job. He said that he and his wife missed home and wanted their two sons to grow up in Libya. This was true, but certainly not the whole story, and I suspect the regime knew it. It's impossible to be from our region and not to have been deeply and profoundly affected by what happened in 2011, and all the more so if you are from a family that has paid the price, you know, of your politics. Like Abdullah and Hisham Matar, novelist Adif Suef is an Arab artist whose family has paid a price for their politics. She sees a bigger project in Hisham Matar's books. They are about a dictatorship and about the resistance to the dictatorship, or rather that is the backdrop, the scenery of the book. But what matters in the book is how different people live differently within these circumstances and how they respond to them and what the outcome or what the consequences of each response are. And this is really what he's examining in, in, in all the work. So you're right, it touches on big political events, but for me the real dramatic event is the drama of the heart, you know, is, is what happens in the minds and hearts of these characters. This was really for me the focus, the human event, not the political event. My Friends is Hisham Mathur's longest novel. It uses the span of decades, generations, and revolutions to attend to an intimate theme, the change of seasons between friends. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Boston Bruins came back to the Garden this afternoon for a home game against the New Jersey Devils, and they shut them down. It was 3-0 Bruins. 7.30 tip-off time tonight for the Boston Celtics. They're on the road up north to take on the Toronto Raptors. The time is 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app, or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Republicans in Iowa hold their first in the nation caucuses this evening. They're kicking off voting in the presidential primary. Donald Trump has maintained a steady polling lead there, but the bone-chilling cold may affect voter turnout. It's now minus 12 in the Capitol. Today is Monday, January 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. January is the month when drug makers typically hike their prices, but this year there are a few notable declines. We'll tell you which are going to cost you less. The 15-year-old granddaughter of Martin Luther King Jr. wants to start a revolution that embraces kindness, equality, and service. I believe that it needs to be incorporated into our curriculum and taught to kids at a young age. On this ML King Day, we'll have a conversation with the Orlando Renee King. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live for NPR News from the Iowa caucuses, I'm Jack Spear. The caucuses are getting underway here tonight. The first test of the candidates running for the GOP nomination for president. Voters will be heading to schools, churches, and community centers. Polls indicate that former President Donald Trump is well ahead of the other candidates. Iowa Public Radio's Sheila Brummer spoke with a caucus captain in Sioux City. Dwayne Brown says he has backed former President Trump since day one and doesn't think bitter cold will keep supporters away from the Iowa caucuses. The National Weather Service expects sub-zero temperatures and wind chills as people head to precinct sites. I think we'll have a big turnout. Basically, the fate of the nation hangs on this. Brown lives in the northwest Iowa community of Sioux City, one of the most conservative spots in the state. He says the country can't afford former years of the current president, and voters want someone who can fix inflation and the southern border. 
For NPR News, I'm Sheila Brummer, Sioux City, Iowa. The big question tonight is whether former President Trump does as well as some of the polls here would suggest. Clearly on the ground, there's plenty of support here. It is definitely Trump country. The further away from Des Moines you get, Rachel Payne Caulfield is a professor at Drake University. If Donald Trump is able to get more than 50% of the vote on caucus night, he is the absolute undisputed winner, and it would be hard, I think, for anybody to to even remotely think that there is a viable alternative to Donald Trump. If, however, he comes in at, say, 42%, and a Nikki Haley or a Ron DeSantis is able to come up to, say, 25%, um, then I think the story out of Iowa is, uh, you know, momentum for an alternative to Donald Trump. Other candidates, of course, including former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, are hoping that is not the case and that they overperform here tonight. Florida Governor DeSantis has poured time and resources into this first-in-the-nation contest, but as NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reports, DeSantis still finds former President Donald Trump looming over his campaign. If you talk to enough DeSantis voters, it becomes clear that he is hitting one specific lane well. People who liked Trump's policies, but not his demeanor or political abilities. Sarah Harbaugh recently saw DeSantis speak in Cedar Falls. My lean towards DeSantis is more just a, I'm not sure that the media and the country would allow Trump to do what he wants to do, where DeSantis, I think, might have a better chance at getting things done. DeSantis has done seemingly everything he can to win Iowa. He has visited all 99 counties and has Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement. While he has loyal supporters, particularly among socially conservative white evangelicals, it's not clear that there's enough of a lane for him in Iowa. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. Again, the big question here tonight is whether the frigid weather will affect turnout. You're listening to NPR News in Iowa. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The presidential primary season is underway and threats to the nation's democracy were a common topic among speakers at Boston's Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Day breakfast today. The annual event highlights the achievements of the black community and it honors King's legacy. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports this year it also included urgent calls to action. Hundreds gathered this morning to hear from community leaders, clergy, and politicians. A recurring theme, democracy in danger. Representative Ayanna Presley spoke about threats to voting rights. People very often will be laudatory about the fact that black folks will wait in line for hours to cast a ballot and that we have outworked and outorganized voter suppression. It should not be that way. Presley called on the crowd to reflect on King's legacy and, quote, fortify themselves for the fight ahead. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The city of Springfield will have its first African-American police superintendent. Lawrence Akers will lead the department in the state's third largest city. Mayor Dominic Sarno made the announcement about Akers today during a Martin Luther King Day celebration. I've witnessed him personally uh, on some difficult situations out on the street, how he's handled. But just as important, his compassion and empathy that he shows the community. The new superintendent is a 36-year-old veteran of the Springfield Police Department. The price of gasoline is down four cents from last week. AAA says the average price of a gallon of gas in the state is $3.13. That's 15 cents lower than it was a month ago. 
It's seven cents higher than the national average. 30 degrees now in the Boston area. There's a winter weather advisory in effect from 7 o'clock tonight through 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Should have some snow flurries through the day tomorrow. Starting early, mixing with rain, especially in the afternoon. That should cause streets and sidewalks to be coated with a light glaze, so be careful out there. The messy weather should come to an end, as the day does, with sunshine ahead for Wednesday. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. Republicans in Iowa hold their first-in-the-nation caucuses this evening, kicking off voting in the presidential primary. Former President Donald Trump has maintained a steady polling lead in Iowa, and he is hoping for a big win there tonight. We begin our coverage with Clay Masters, who's reported on many of these caucuses and is now with Minnesota Public Radio. Hi, Clay. Hello. So, Clay, before we get into the candidates and the politics of all of this, you got to give us a weather report. We are hearing that it is absolutely freezing there in Iowa, and I have to assume that could have some impact on the caucuses tonight, right? Yeah, it'll have an impact, but not really sure how yet. These Republican events are in person. Remember, they begin at 7 p.m. local time, so people need to you know, leave their warm homes or wherever and gather at some 1,600 precincts across the state. At caucus time, uh, temperatures will be around minus four in Des Moines with wind chill much colder. And that's really dangerous conditions to be out in. Roads won't be great, especially in rural counties where it's further distance to travel uh, than say Des Moines or Cedar Rapids, the larger metros. And so it may affect turnout, but it's unclear which candidate that might really benefit from the weather like this. Yeah, well, hoping everybody stays safe. Clay, let's turn now to the candidates. I know that you're going to be with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis tonight. Tell us how the Florida governor sees this evening going. Well, DeSantis has a lot riding on the results here, perhaps more than anyone else. He's invested a lot of time and a lot of energy here in Iowa, visiting all of the state's 99 counties. Endorsements from Governor Kim Reynolds, which is pretty unprecedented for a sitting governor to endorse, and Bob Vanderplotz, uh, who's a evangelical leader in the state who always becomes kind of the topic of conversation around caucuses because of his endorsements. So we'll see if all that investment pays dividends tonight. But the fact is, he's he's still in a battle for second place if polls are accurate, and finishing well behind Trump and maybe even Nikki Haley would raise some pretty serious questions about his path forward. Uh, I've been following him in recent days. And he said, you know, don't believe the polls. This is how you win by doing the strategy he has done. I was at the headquarters for his Never Back Down pack, which has done a lot of the campaigning for him on his behalf a couple days ago. And it was full of volunteers who had come up from Florida. They were here to help out in the finals days. So he's he's got a lot of organization and investment in the state. Okay, so that's DeSantis. But what about the other leading candidates, former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley? Yeah, as you said, Juana, Trump is the clear front runner based on polling. So he and his surrogates have been urging people, you know, not to get complacent. Trump often brings out some newer voters. So that's perhaps part of the thinking. But many Trump supporters are very committed to him and getting out regardless of the weather. It's clear Trump would like to win by double digits tonight so that he can just truly pivot to just focusing on the general election. And you mentioned Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador as well. She's hoping to get in his way here, not even necessarily 
necessarily win, but cut into that lead substantially and propel her to states that may be more favorable, like New Hampshire next week, and then to her home state of, of South Carolina. And I should mention, too, you still have Vivek Ramaswamy, who this morning is saying he's going to win the Iowa caucuses. He's done uh, the full Grassley twice. The full Grassley is a reference to hitting every one mm-hmm. of Iowa's 99 counties, and he, he did it twice. But he's pulling a distant fourth most of this caucus cycle. So we'll see if those traditional campaign strategies have the same impact here in 2024. And Clay, we we haven't mentioned Democrats at all here, and that's purposeful. Remind folks why that is. President Joe Biden is the incumbent, of course, with lesser known challengers, but Iowa Democrats also moved away from caucuses after tech issues marred their contest four years ago. So the DNC has has moved on from Iowa being first in the nation. South Carolina is. So here in Iowa, Democrats are doing a mail voting contest that will conclude on March 5th. That's Super Tuesday. So that's when we'll know the results of the Democratic caucuses here. And that's really cleared the focus for Republicans and, of course, Donald Trump. Clay Masters from Minnesota Public Radio reporting from Iowa. Clay, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Today, many people are honoring the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., including his first and only grandchild. Yolanda Renee King is 15 years old. She never met her grandfather, but like countless others, she's been inspired by his words and actions. To honor the legacy of both her grandparents, King wrote the picture book, We Dream a World. Carrying the light from my grandparents, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. NPR's Andrew Limbong spoke with Yolanda Renee King, and he asked her what prompted her to write a book. Well, I wrote this book to inspire hope and to encourage young people to use their talents to create a better world. And this book really, I guess, challenges everyone to imagine a world without racism and and violence and discrimination and a clean climate. Yeah, yeah. You take a lot of big swings in the book. And I I just want to dial back a bit. Do you remember the first time you understood your your grandparents' legacy? And I wonder what that felt like. My whole life, I, I had always been told and educated about what my grandparents did. And I would say that around the age of nine is when I, or eight, is when I first really started to understand their legacy. Like, it wasn't just someone directly telling me. It was, it was me being able to come to a conclusion myself. I, I remember thinking to myself, wow. My grandparents are pretty awesome. Was it something that happened or or did you witness something where that light bulb sort of clicked? I can't remember. I don't have an actual distinct memory of me doing anything and it coming up. I I can probably tell you that I I may have been reading or watching something about them and it it suddenly hit me in a different light. I, I actually was able to, I guess, understand the actual significance and the actual dedication. I feel like as I mature, like I understand more and more. Yeah, it was like you coming at it in your own terms, in your right. own way. Which is funny because in the book you write, um, quote, and now it's my turn to start a new revolution that values kindness, truth, equality, and service. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that point and what you mean? Well, I, I really believe that service is is one of the best ways to solve our issues and i i believe that it needs to be incorporated into our curriculum and 
I am taught to kids at a young age because I really think that through service and and through using our talents and strengths, that, that's where the impact comes in. And in fact, service is so important to my family and I. Today, we are announcing our five-year project that celebrates my grandfather's 100th birthday with the goal of a, obtaining 100 million hours of service within five years, so by the 100th birthday. This initiative is called Realizing the Dream, and we are kicking it off at the NFL wildcard game in Tampa. It's a pretty big way to try and like change the world, kind of. And that can be kind of daunting, especially for, for young people. Um, do you have any advice for someone who might not know where to start? I think a lot of people, the thing that scares them or discourages them from getting involved is that they think that, oh, I have to do a speech and speak in front of a very fancy rally with a large, large audience. Mm -hmm. While that is great and impactful, that's not the only way. And there are so many other ways. And it can be something you do outside of work. It can be something like using your talents. So if you're, for instance, an artist, um, painting, um, painting art pieces that really reflect what's going on. And I think a lot of people forget how big of a role art's played, whether that be visually or, or musically in the civil rights movement. And and you could write songs or joining a local group or or starting a club at school. There, there are just so many ways. You, you've talked a little bit about finding your own thing. You have to you know, use your own voice and find what works for you, right? Um you have a name that's important and historic, uh, which is great, but I, but I think sometimes I can like weigh on a person. And, and I'm wondering, how have you gone about finding your own thing, your own voice? Well, it's a growing process. It, it's not, I don't think one day I've, I've woken up and I've found my voice. I think it's something that evolves. It's like, it, it's almost growing with me. So as I grow, my voice grows and it's not fully developed yet since I'm still growing. And, and honestly, like when you're an adult, I feel like you're still growing as you're learning stuff. So I, I think that it will be something that will constantly be growing as I mature and as I get more wise. Yes, I, I'll let you know, we are still <laughs> growing. We don't really know what we're doing, dude. Um, you know, I'm wondering, what is something you think your grandparents would be proud of seeing today? Well, I think that my grandparents would be proud of seeing the the young generations and, and how involved they are and concerned they are about the issues. My grandfather, I think a lot of people forget this, but he was only 39 when he was assassinated. And, and so when the movement began, he was he was still in his 20s. And, and so he started um, pretty young. Yeah, I, I think that that's an that's an understated point. But I do wonder, speaking of being young, you know, we're catching you, you know, in between flights in between all these like big events. Um, do you have time to just like be 15? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, uh, I still like to hang out with friends and then watch movies and listen to music and everything else. And, and this is probably the most busiest weekend of the year. And usually during this time, yeah. there's, um, there's, not, there's not a lot of time for downtime or time with friends. But even as I've been on the road, I'll still, I mean, yesterday I was just talking to my best friend. We, we talk to each other every day. And, and so I'm still talking to people and we still will hang out probably when I get home and after all of this is, after this week is done. Um, but, but yeah, I, I enjoy that. Yolanda Renee King is the granddaughter of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. Her new book is called We Dream a World, Carrying the Light from My Grandparents. 
Yolanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. To all things considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. State and county officials are receiving the first wave of settlement money from companies that flooded communities with opioids. Those officials say a lot of corporations are trying to get a slice of the payout. And so there's a particular concern just with this idea of we got this money because of corporate wrongdoing. Should it be going to corporations again? Where the opioid settlement money is going, coming up in business news starting at 6.30. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Wall Street was closed today. In the forecast, a cold night ahead falling to the low to mid-20s. Then we're back to the wet winter weather tomorrow. Could have some snow starting in the early morning hours. Likely light flurries for much of the day. Not a lot of accumulation. It all depends on where you are. Barely anything accumulating south of the city and on the Cape and Islands. Maybe an inch or two in Boston and right around it. Could have up to four inches north and west. But again, that could change temperatures in the mid-30s tomorrow. Wednesday should be bright and sunny and dry again, only in the mid-20s. 7.30 tip-off time for the Celtics tonight. They're on the road up north to take on the Raptors. And for the Bruins, it was a shutout today over the New Jersey Devils at the Garden. This is WBUR. It's 6.30, uh, 6.20. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Drug companies often increase prices at the start of the new year, and 2024 seems to be no exception. Here to talk to us about prescription drug price hikes is NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin. Hey there. Hi. What's this year looking like so far? So there have been about 600 price hikes so far in January, but overall, they're not terrible. That's according to the drug price nonprofit 46 Brooklyn Research, which analyzed the data. In the 2010s, drug price hikes were actually much bigger, up to 10% on average. Here's 46 Brooklyn's CEO, Anthony Chacha. Since 2016, the pedal to the metal has been kind of pulled back a little bit 
where we typically see the weighted average impact of a price increase and the median price increase hovering at around 5%. And that's what he's seeing this year. He expects another couple hundred more drug price increases before the end of the month, and that will account for most brand name price hikes this year. However, there is another kind of price to think about called a net price, and that's what the drug maker takes home after rebates it has to pay back to third parties, discounts, etc. And on the whole, those rebates have been going up, so the net prices have been going down for about six years now. Richard Evans, a pharmaceutical industry veteran who runs SSR Health says net prices went down a little faster in 2023 than in previous years. As of September 30 last year, the average discount in the marketplace was about 52%. So manufacturers are getting about 48 cents on the dollar. So even if a drug sticker price is going up, that doesn't mean the drug maker is taking all that money home. Were there any surprises this year? Yes, actually. There was also huge list price decreases, according to 46 Brooklyn. These were for insulins and inhalers, and they weren't tiny cuts. We're talking 70, 80 percent list price cuts for these drugs. GSK says it plans to cut Advair's list price by up to 70 percent, for example. Cha-Cha says the cuts are so significant that they actually cancel out the increases when you're doing weighted averages of price changes. Why is that happening? So the big factor is legislation passed in 2021 under President Biden called the American Rescue Plan Act. It was mostly a COVID-era stimulus bill, but it also included a part that affects Medicaid. Prior to that law, drug makers had to pay penalties for increasing prices faster than inflation. But there was a cap on those penalties. The American Rescue Plan lifted the cap in 2024. And now drug makers would have to pay such huge penalties for raising prices faster than inflation that they'd owe the government more than the value of the drugs. They would make negative money. Here's Cha-Cha again. The end result is drug manufacturers crushing the prices of many of these old products or pulling those products from the marketplace altogether to avoid having to pay the steep penalties to Medicaid programs. Okay, so prices are going up, but some are going down. What does all of this mean for consumers? Usually what someone pays at the pharmacy counter is related to the list price. So if a list price goes up, the copay will probably be more. But a price cut doesn't necessarily mean savings at the pharmacy counter. The copay could wind up being more because it causes the drug to move to a different tier of the menu of drugs your insurance provides. And this has a lot to do with the behind the scenes payments that happen between the drug maker and your insurance's middleman called the pharmacy benefits manager. So the short answer, I'm really sorry to say, is that it really depends. That's NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lepkin. Thanks. You bet. The 75th Emmy Awards will air live tonight from Los Angeles. You might be wondering if it's normal that this ceremony celebrating primetime television shows and streaming series is happening on a public holiday. The answer is no. NPR's Mandalay Del Barco reports on the much-delayed ceremony, which will honor what might feel like long-ago TV performances. 
Last summer, Hollywood writers and performers were on the picket lines demanding new contracts with the studios and streamers. TV productions were stalled. Writers and actors couldn't talk about their work, much less attend any events like red carpets or award shows. So the Television Academy decided to push the Emmys from last September to this month. That means nominations may feel a bit dated. The fourth and final season of Succession, which ended in May, leads the pack with 27 nominations. After all we've been through. The first season of HBO's The Last of Us ended in March. Now it's up against Succession for outstanding drama. So is the Star Wars series Andor, which ended in November of 2022, and Better Call Saul, which ended even earlier in August of 2022. Who's here to see Saul Goodman? Better Call Saul has been off the air for about 18 months, and we're still trying to get Bob Odenkirk an Emmy. So it gets a little strange around this time. Clayton Davis is senior awards editor at Variety. We just watched Jeremy Allen White and Ayo Itabiri win Golden Globes for season two of The Bear, and we still don't know if they won Emmys for season one. Nominations for the Emmys were announced last July, and voting ended in August, in the middle of the double strikes. There were still billboards, and everyone could see who was in the Emmy race, but, you know, the social media of these actors were quiet. The social media of writers were quiet. You know, they couldn't promote anything. We might see maybe one of the purest Emmy winners that we've seen in some time because there was no campaigning. So people just had their own feelings about these TV shows. Davis wonders in the Outstanding Comedy Series category if The Bear will maul Ted Lasso. And then there's Abbott Elementary, a broadcast show hasn't won since Modern Family, uh, season five. So can this be the revival of broadcast television? These are the questions I'm dying to know. Davis notes that the eligibility for the next Emmy Awards comes up soon, in just four months. That ceremony is still scheduled for September, though this past year's TV production delays could make for another unusual awards race. Meanwhile, tonight, actor and comedian Anthony Anderson will host the Emmys. Four years ago, he was tapped for a comedic bit during the show. From his seat in the audience, he bounded on stage and backstage to look for someone to emcee that ceremony. We're saved! Ladies and gentlemen, I've saved the Emmys! After the widely agreed-upon disaster that was the Golden Globes host job last week, viewers may be watching to see if Anderson can help rev excitement for the winners of this year's Emmy Awards. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. Will tonight's Emmy ceremony be worth the long wait? Find out on tomorrow's All Things Considered. The team from NPR's Arts and Culture Desk will have a recap of the show. They'll have the story of the winners and the losers. Plus, they'll tell us all about Annie's surprises. From the red carpet to backstage, you'll have an all-access pass. Tune in on the radio, online, or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The caucuses in Iowa start up in 90 minutes. Join us for live coverage right at 8 o'clock tonight. And tomorrow morning, get a full look at the results and how they set the stage for the GOP race to come. The candidate's next stop is New Hampshire. Also tomorrow morning, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry is leaving the Biden administration after three years. We'll assess his environmental legacy. So tune in when you wake up tomorrow. There's a winter weather advisory in effect from 7 tonight through 7 tomorrow night. Turning cloudy and cold tonight in the mid-20s, should have some snowfall early tomorrow, continuing during the day. May not amount to too much on the ground, but forecasters say it should mix with some rain, and that combined with chilly temperatures could cause slipping and sliding on the roads, so be especially careful tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com.